Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode, which is going to be all about memory. I'm going to talk about how memories are formed, how false memories are formed, memory consolidation, the difference between short-term working memory, long-term memory, what happens when you get certain lesions or, you know, um, maybe seizures or certain accidents and what occurs to your memory and with also with neurodegeneration in the brain. And also at the very end, I'm going to touch on ways that you can actually improve your memory. So, it's all about memory. Now, I'm not going to go into my week that was none of that. I'm just going to go straight into today's episode. It is more of like a deep dive into that one topic. And I think it's going to be super interesting because I've dived into memory in like snippets here and there on my brain facts and this and that. But I think it's kind of cool to do a whole episode on it because I think that memory forms who you are as a person. It's your life. It make it, it makes up your personality. It makes up your history. It makes up how you respond to situations and how you act. So if there's ever an opportunity for you to work on preserving your memory or improving your memory, you want to fucking take it with both hands because your life will get better when your memory gets better. Loss of memory is one of the major causes of stress and depression. So pay attention Let's work on improving your memory. Let's be conscious about it. Let's do something about it. And you are going to feel more excited about life, happier about life, and just happier in general. Okay, cool beans. Let's get into it. So there's been a few interesting studies that have been done on memory, and not just a few. We're talking a fuck ton of very interesting studies that have been done. And there's one really interesting study just to kind of get you aware of how retrieval works and false memories work. So there was a study that was done in 1990 and they got, what they did is they got all these participants who were involved in the study to remember getting lost in a shopping center. And some of the memories that these people, like when they were a child, obviously, and some of the memories that these people came up with were really quite vivid. One person was even like, oh, I remember who even found me and who helped me like find my parents. It was this man in like a flannel shirt. But none of the people that had actually retrieved these memories had actually been lost in a shopping center as a child. So these memories were actually false memories through this study where people were speaking to a psychologist and the psychologist would be talking them through memories and talking them through events. And the psychologist told these people that they had actually been lost in a shopping center and this information was confirmed by that person's parents. Honestly, don't ask me the details why the fuck a psychologist is talking to your parents about being lost in a shopping center. I don't know, but that's how the study went down. And so because this memory was implanted in somebody's mind, a quarter of the people, one quarter of the people turned it into a memory that they believed to be real to the extent that they added details to that memory that the psychologist had not told them about, okay? So they started having these vivid images. They were recalling details of all these events that never actually happened, okay? And this shows, this small study was one of like the major studies that showed how you can, people bring in external information such as other things that you've seen, what people have told you, the media, mixing memories and blending an old memory or a relevant memory into one. So maybe the person that was in that shopping center is imagining a mall that they used to always go to. Maybe they did have an encounter with a man in a flannel shirt, but it had nothing to to do with getting lost and then they've kind of blended those two memories together when retrieving something that doesn't even exist and so it shows you how how much influence external information can have on your memory of past events and things that have happened okay 
this is where police interrogation and like witness accounts and all of that can be extremely misleading because if they lead with a question that's either biased or like skewed towards a certain piece of information, then that person can actually have their memory compromised of the actual real event and it can be compromised. So you can compromise it yourself. You can kind of go in and kind of mess up that memory yourself or someone else can do that for you. Because like I mentioned in one of my brain facts ages ago, I don't know if you've even listened to that episode, but when you recall a memory, you are not recalling when it happened. You are remembering the last time you remembered it, okay? Or the most impactful time that you remembered it. So, something that I also mentioned, but I thought I'd, I'd re-mention it because there's so many episodes now that I don't expect new listeners to have already listened to all the episodes. But there was this really interesting thing that occurred with this woman once, and this is not just a, an isolated case. It's happened many times, but this is the example that I'm using, where when you relive a memory with new information, it can change how you experience that memory. So, for example, this woman was a witness at a at a criminal case in the courts, right? And she was a witness because she was a bank teller and a man had come in, pulled a gun on her and asked her to obviously hand over the money. Anyway, they found this man. She was one of the key witnesses at the trial. She goes to the trial, but before she went up on the stand, she found out through another eyewitness that the bank that he had gone to prior, when he pulled the gun on somebody, he actually shot that person. So now this woman finds out this new piece of information and after that new piece of information came to light, which was months after the event, she then developed PTSD because she found new information that caused that memory to be a whole lot more traumatic than what it was at the actual time. I mean, it's fucking traumatic getting a gun pulled on your fucking face. I don't know how that doesn't... Anyway, but she had no symptoms of PTSD the first time, but when she then finds out that the other person was shot, that's when then she gets PTSD. Rightly so, right? But it just shows that she's now reliving that memory with new information and it has now caused her this trauma. And this happens, not to this crazy extent, but this happens all the time where we layer on pieces of information every time we think of a memory. So when you remember something, you are remembering the last time you remembered it. That is why also when you speak to, let's say you're speaking to a relative, it could be a parent or a partner or whatever, and you're both recalling a memory that you were both a part of. And you're arguing with each other and you're thinking, how the fuck could this person be getting it so wrong? Yes, that happened, but it was not in this year and it was not at that holiday. It was here. But they're thinking the same thing about you. They're thinking, how the fuck could you be getting it so wrong? So either both of you have got some detail wrong Like the essence of it is correct, what happened, what went down, who said what, yes. But then details around it are incorrect and you're literally fighting, arguing, and you definitely think you're right. But the other person definitely thinks they're right too. And often it's kind of in the middle. Often both of you have got some details wrong and a lot right and then you're coming to the middle thinking, how has this person gotten it so wrong? And that comes down to how you have kind of tainted that memory based on when you have retrieved it. And a lot of the time, if you if you bunch all family holidays into one and one day you're talking about a family holiday and then you talk about this event that occurred and that happened in the same sitting, then a year later you're going to retrieve that information and you remember the last time you remembered it. But you're also talking about another event that you were at and you might blend those two memories together. Okay. I'm also going to be talking about like eyewitness accounts and how that like can fuck with your memory. Um, But another study that was done 
kind of going back to what I was talking about, that shopping centre study. Another study was done where participants were shown like one week, for example, they were shown photos of places that they had never been to. Then a few weeks later, they were shown the same photos of those places and they were asked had they ever been there again. And this time, I think it was like over half of the participants, the second time around were pretty sure that they had been to one of the locations there, despite them only recalling that location because they saw the photo a week or a few weeks earlier. It, they they were adamant when they first saw the photo that they had never been there. Then when they see it again, they're like, no, I'm pretty sure I actually have been there. But this comes down to, again, remembering when you last remembered. So they're now thinking, have I been there? Have I not? And they're thinking about, I've seen this place before, but they're not recalling the fact that last time they saw it, they knew for a fact the experience they had when they saw it was, I've never been here before. So again, that just shows how memories can be tainted. Now I want to talk about a case of a man who's very famous. If you studied psychology or neuroscience or anything remotely close or psychiatry, you've probably heard of this dude. His name is Henry Malayason or Malayason. They refer to him as HM for a very long time because he was anonymous. He's passed away since and his name is Henry Malayason. But I'm going to call him HM, okay? So this man, when he was younger, he had, I think it was like a traumatic head injury and due to that, he then had a lot of seizures. But the seizures were so intrusive into his life and so invasive that he literally had to drop out of school. He couldn't function. And the man was quite intelligent, but it was just really impeding on his quality of life. So he was like, I need to to get this seen to. I need to obviously get this done. He went to a doctor called Scoville, Dr. Scoville. And this doctor was very experienced in lobotomies, okay? And a lobotomy, which they rarely do now, and even if they do it, it's probably not really called a lobotomy anymore. But basically, lobotomies were basically really by and large a fucked procedure where they would either slice, like lesion a certain part of the brain, or um, kind of chop up, like mix, like a little fucking, imagine a miniature blade or whisk where they're like chopping up a little section of the brain and making it mush or removing a part of the brain altogether. All these things happened with lobotomies. And lobotomies could either be done through like a really invasive surgery where they're like opening up the skull or it could be done just right through like the T, like where the tears come out of and you pierce through. I'm not going to get graphic. It's really fucked up. Anyway, lobotomies were really, really common and obviously very intrusive and very damaging to a lot of people. So that's why they obviously don't do it again. But lobotomies were based around the fact that this idea that brain function was very, very localized to certain brain areas and it didn't really variate or deviate from that. So we now know that a lot of brain regions, while while we can be sure that like memory storage and long-term memory is in the hippocampus and we can be sure where the primary motor cortex is and all of that, we also understand that those areas have several roles and, and, and they take care of several things and everyone's brain is also made up slightly differently to each other. So you might have these universal concepts that exist, but the specifics of it vary from person to person and each brain region probably takes care of more than just one task. So if you go in and destroy this part of the brain, you're probably destroying a whole lot more than you went out to to destroy, you know? Um, so anyway, this guy was having a lot of seizures and that that activity of the seizures was present in his hippocampus. And as I've, as I've spoken before, hippocampus is very crucial to learning and um, storage of of um, long-term memories and memory retrieval and all of that and also moods and whatever. So it's, it's involved in a lot, okay? Now, the doctor went in 
and performed a lobotomy where he removed the hippocampus, both because the hippocampus is, there's two of them, everything is like there's two hemispheres in the brain. So obviously he removed hippocampus on both sides. And the operation as far as the seizures was a great success. He barely had any other seizures again. His intelligence seemed pretty intact. His personality was the same, but his memory was destroyed. His memory from the last decade was gone and he almost forgot pretty much every new memory. He would forget what he ate. He would forget if he had ever watched that movie so he could watch the same movie again and again. He would forget the start of the movie when he'd get to the end of the movie. He would forget if he had even met a person. So every time he met that person, he would have no recollection of having met them before. He would forget walking into a room. And 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 when you have that level of memory loss, you become very, very dependent on carers. You become quite disabled. You can't leave your home because you don't know how to get back. You can't go shopping for food because you don't know what you need and you don't remember what you've already got at home. You don't remember how much you're going to need. You don't remember how much money you've spent. You can't budget. You can't fucking do anything when you don't have this ability to consolidate any memory whatsoever. Okay. So this woman who was like a PhD student, but then ended up working with him for a very long time called Brenda Milder. She went to work with him and she was interviewing him and she put down a lot of findings. And through this woman's findings, she learned so much about memory and how memory is retained. And she found out that He could retain information within working memory, and I'll go into what working memory is exactly, but there's pretty much that bracket of short-term memory when you're using your memory consciously and you're using it to process information and do something with that information. So, for example, if he was told a number and he repeated that number again and again, he could remember, he could hold on to that number for about 15 minutes. But if there was a break of just a couple of minutes, he had no recollection of that number and he had no recollection that that test had even happened because there was a lapse in that working memory. He stopped the, the, the continuity of the thought process and the moment that stopped, then that particular chunk of working memory was gone, could not be consolidated, so it could not be retrieved, okay? And this immediate data when you remember something, like even for like just briefly, this immediate data travels to the hippocampus. And here you've got all these proteins that work to record and strengthen these pieces of information. And then the hippocampus goes through this process of consolidation and then sends a memory, it keeps it in the hippocampus, but it also sends it to parts of the cortex as well. Okay. So without the hippocampus, he could not consolidate or store anything properly. And when you can't consolidate, memory can't be formed and it can't be stored correctly. However, they found that his motor tasks, when they would give him something to do with the motor task, like one thing was he had to trace a star, but when he was tracing it, he had to only look at the star in a mirror. So it's kind of a different skill that you're using because your arms are going in a different direction of what you're looking in the mirror. So the first time he did it, he was really terrible at it, like most people would be. But then she noticed that every day she'd go and visit him. When he'd do this task, he got better and better and better at the task. And if his memory was truly shot to pieces in all ways, shapes and forms, then that that process should not have improved. So they found that motor task and motor memory, which is called procedural memory, I'll go into the different kinds of memory in a second, but this procedural memory is more stored in the basal ganglia and in the cerebellum, two different brain regions, than the hippocampus. So it's not as involved in the hippocampus as it is in these other brain regions, okay? Whereas declarative or semantic memory, which is names, facts, dates, knowledge, concepts, all of that, that is more stored in the hippocampus. Okay. That's the declarative memory versus um, 
procedural. So let's talk about that. So we've got declarative memory, like I just said. That's It's also called semantic memory. It's the knowing that. I know that dot, dot, dot. I know that glutamate is an excitatory neurotransmitter. I know that Canberra is the capital of Australia. I know that, et cetera, okay? And then you've got procedural memories, which is I know how to. I know how to sign my name. I know how to speak English. I know how to walk. I know how to play the guitar. I know how to ride a bicycle, drive a car, blah, 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 blah. It's, it's kind of, it's more motor task and it's knowing how to do something, how to execute a task. And then you've got episodic memory. So that's tied to timelines in your life, episodes of your life, events, um, experiences that you've had. So for example, with me, I'm terrible at remembering names and faces. I mean, really, I'm, it, this is like a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think the more I say it, the more I ingrain it into my head so I need to stop saying it. But I'm not great at names and faces. But I'm bang on when it comes to episodic memory. If you remind me of an event that occurred, I can tell you the timeline of events that happened that day. So if you say to me, I oh, remember that party that we went to a year ago where this happened, that happened. If you can trigger my memory, I can pretty much say yes you and I went to the beach earlier that day. We then went and got burgers. Then we went home and I was like sunburnt and I put fucking aloe vera gel on and then I got ready and then we got got together, caught an Uber and went to the thing. Like I can literally give you a fucking timeline of events that happened. Whereas I've got friends of mine that are guns at names and faces, but their episodic memory isn't that great. They're like, how the fuck do you remember those details and why would you need to, right? Like why are you remembering that? But they can retain so much more about names and faces than I can. So- some people just are more skilled at, at, at certain things than others. Some people layer, and you're going to find out very soon, some people layer more meaning to these things. So when I look at name, when I hear names and look at faces, I'm obviously not layering enough meaning as I'm consolidating that piece of information subconsciously. Whereas when I think of a timeline of events, for whatever reason, I, I put in so much more meaning on chronological events as they're happening and I don't do that on purpose. So you might slot into one of those two categories or both if you're very lucky. Now, let's talk about the difference between explicit or implicit memory. So explicit is exactly what I said, declarative, knowing that, like I know these facts, I know the capital of this, I know the name of this country, that flag is the flag of X country, all these informations. It's when you study for an exam, it's what you learnt at uni, at school, that is explicit or declarative memory and semantic memory, that's all explicit implicit is the stuff that you don't have to put in effort to remember. So for example, I burnt myself once on that stove. I never have to like study it to recall it. It's fucking seared into my mind or I, um, you know, for it or, or when someone, you know, does something really beautiful, you have a really funny event. You don't have to study that event to recall it and remember it. It's locked into your mind. If somebody proposed to you, you're not going to forget that very easily, are you? So it's it's these things that you don't have to work to remember. I know I like the taste of a donut. I don't have to study that. I don't have to keep recalling, recalling to remember it. That is implicit memory, stuff that you do not have to put in effort to remember. So now how do you access your memories? This is what's really, really important because there's different ways of accessing your memories and you need to ideally train in the most difficult way to access your memory if you want to improve your memory, okay? So we've got recall memory. Recall memory is is reaching back into your mind to fill in the blank. So if you're doing a test and the question is what is 
or what are the colors of the Spanish flag? You are recalling that information, okay? If someone says, what is the name of the major inhibitor and neurotransmitter, that is recall information. You don't really have any prompts. Then the second one is recognition. Recognition is kind of like a multiple choice test. It's where the answer is visible there and you recognize it. It prompts something in you and you think, yep, I remember that. I know that. I can recognize that as being the true answer. Or I can recognize that most of them are wrong. So out of, out of through um, a process of elimination, I know that this one must be correct. Okay. That is a lot easier and less effort, less work, less retrieval work, less effort accessing your memories than recall memory is. And then the last one is relearning. So this is where you're refreshing or reinforcing old information. Like, you know, when you feel like you don't really remember something, but when you start going over your notes, you're like, ah, yep. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yep. This, this kind of rings a bell. Yep. I'm going to reinforce that and relearn it. So that's the last one. Okay. So this is when you're studying like well, studying anything, learning a language, practicing, playing music. When you go back to it and start doing it, you notice it's a little bit rusty, but then you click in and you, you kind of can get back into that zone a lot easier, okay? And that, that's how you start to strengthen that memory. This whole idea of cells that wire together, fire together, if you're doing kind of semantic memory task, you want to get better at it. Of course, repetition is one of the best things you can do. So how are memories formed in the first place? So first you get an input. It's a sensory input, which could be a piece of information, auditory, visual, tactile, whatever. It then goes into your working or short-term memory, okay? So short-term memory is kind of the broader fa- like phrase for it that we know, but it's actually technically working memory. And I'm going to explain working memory in more detail in a sec. Then it's got to be encoded into your long-term memory, which – And long-term memory, you kind of want to look at it as like this infinite cloud of storage and information. You can make it as big as you want. You know, it's pretty impressive, this, this memory that we have. But not all pieces of data are going to make it into your short-term or your working memory. And not all pieces of information are equal as far as your ability to remember a piece of information. If you hear a number or a list of items and you've got to repeat that number or the list of items, the chances of you remembering it if you haven't rehearsed it or recalled it or said it again and again and again in your working memory are probably slim. So unless you have linked that number or list of words to meaning – which of course then strengthens your memory, I'll go into that, then you're probably going to forget it, especially if things have been occurring in the interim before you're made to then recall that number or name or whatever. So for example, if someone told me to remember the number 109 and then an hour later said, can you remember that number? Because the number 109 is my absolute favorite number and it crops up at all these meaningful times in my life, of course I'm going to remember the number. But if someone said, can you remember the the number 193? I probably won't remember it, okay, unless I've repeated it in my head. The same goes for names. If someone says to you, remember the name Bella, if you know a Bella or if you are called Bella, you're probably going to fucking remember that name. Or if you link it to a character in a movie that you love who's also called Bella, the chances of you remembering it are so much higher because you have linked the name to meaning. Information linked to no meaning makes makes it a lot easier to forget. Okay, so for example, who in Australia remembers the fucking phone number to the fucking reading and writing hotline? Okay, 
Most of us that existed in the late 90s, early 2000s will remember that fucking jingle of 13006555506. Like it was this hectic jingle on repeat for the ad and now I've got that useless phone number stuck in my head for the rest of my life, okay? And that is a perfect way of learning something and retaining it. You have linked it to meaning. You've linked it to a song. You've linked it to like a, a, a pattern in your head, some sort of a rhythm. You sing the song. It's much easier to remember something that's linked to something else. Now, this declarative memory that's not linked to too much meaning can decay really quickly if it's not encoded with effort. And like I said, effort, you're linking it to something. You're you're putting in the effort to like, that name reminds me of this person, of this image, bang, I can remember it a lot easier now. If you don't do that, that memory will probably decay in about 20 or 30 seconds, okay? If the information is an isolated thing and you didn't keep it in your mind with something that's relevant, you forget it, okay? Your mind can hold about four things. Some people a little bit more, but it's about four things within your working memory that you're consciously focusing on. And if we don't apply it or process it, it's going to go and then it decays and it won't get consolidated. Now I want to go more, like more deep. I want to dive deeper into this idea of um, your working memory. So also known as short-term memory, but it's more properly defined as your working memory. It is, this is the definition of it. It is conscious, active processing of incoming auditory and visual spatial information and of information retrieved from long-term memory. So it involves explicit and implicit, okay? So what we, this is kind of what we know as this automatic processing, things that are burned into you for your benefit or your survival, but also information that, you know, you it's kind of explicit. It's kind of you've got to learn it in the moment. So working memory is working on all these things. It's your ability to use the information that you've got in the moment at hand, whether it's a conversation that you're having or whether it's something that you need to remember, pulling information from your long-term memory and using it as relevant and doing something with it and executing it. It's ha- It's got to do with a goal that you've got, and doing something with it, okay? It's a form of kind of multitasking where you're using conscious and subconscious processes because like I said, like, and there's kind of like a cap to it. You know how some people, when they start doing something, they then pause all of a sudden and then can't do the other thing and they're too focused on one thing because technically multitasking only works when you're doing something consciously and something subconsciously and even then it can kind of get in the way because you've got a, a cap of how much information you can process at any given time without kind of something breaking breaking down or something not working or you're doing poorly at a task. But this idea of actually multitasking on conscious processing is not really possible. There's only so much that you can process at one time. Now, let's look at examples of working memory. Working memory, you you log in, you go to log into something and it asks you for your password. You sitting there thinking, I'm wanting to enter this site now. I'm using my ability to know what's being asked of me, my ability to retrieve information from my long-term memory, and then I can write it down and click enter. That is all working memory. You're using the information of the now with information of the past, mixing it together and doing and putting it into practice to execute a goal. It's this idea where you, you know, lock up the house, you turn around to leave and you're like, oh, my phone, I've left it inside. You, this idea of 
unlocking the house, going back into the house, knowing where you placed your phone, grabbing your phone and then leaving while knowing that you're still in a rush. It's this idea of this working memory being like, I've got to grab my phone, but I can't fuck around. I can't just sit down and scroll through it. I know I'm in a rush. I've got to go. That whole process is your working memory. Or there's the flip side of that where you entered a room, you don't know why the fuck you've entered that room and you're like, oh, only to leave and return back to where you were to then know why the fuck you entered that room. That's working memory. And the reason you return back to the room and that's when you remember why you entered that room is because there was a trigger. There was a memory or a trigger that made you be like, oh, that's why I had walked into that room in the first place to grab that book or that item or whatever, the pen, whatever. When you do that and your memory lapses, that's because you've overloaded your memory with too many things. You're either stressed, you're either trying to remember too many things, you're trying to do too many tasks. You're not focused enough. So when you do walk into that room to grab that pen and you're like, why am I here? If you stay there and continue to ruminate and stress, the chances of you actually remembering are probably not great depending on how your memory works. But if you turn around and leave, boom, it's going to come back into your memory because you're not blocking it, okay? But ultimately, working memory is your ability to access pieces of information and do something useful with it. So if your working memory is really good, your ability to bring in relevant pieces of information and, here's the key, keep it relevant to the task at hand is stronger. You are probably, if you've got good working memory, you're probably a great storyteller. You don't deviate on these fucked pathways. You really know how to keep it entertaining because you've got good working memory. You can stick to the task at hand while pulling in relevant funny pieces of information. You can read the room at the same time and respond to what's working and what's not working and continue with the unfolding of that storyline. That's a good storyteller, someone with great working memory. The same goes for someone who can really argue properly. You can stick to the conversation at hand. You can stick to the relevant information and you can also pull in relevant information. You're also really good at debating. You're also really good at those problem-solving tests that don't really work on you know, you needing to have you know, a high IQ or whatever, but this is ability to problem-solving problem solving something in the moment. Um, you're also much better at reasoning at a higher level. So this comes down to not only how you argue or how you debate, but how you approach things just within your own life, how you can in the moment pull relevant information, look at the piece of information that you have and make something useful out of it instead of going on this like downward spiral of freaking out and not kind of not reasoning with what with the information that you've got, okay? Sometimes if you struggle to reason with something, it's because you're focusing way too heavily on the one thing that's at hand without pulling in relevant pieces of information that help you be like, okay, I know for a fact that it could be better if I did this or that it's not bad because I've seen it happen before or I've been here before, et cetera, et cetera, okay? So that's all working memory. Now let's do a little, let's do a little test on your working memory right now. Don't write it down. That defeats the purpose of the test. I'm going to give you five words to remember and then I'm going to give you some little tasks to do in the meantime. It doesn't matter if you can get the task done or not. It's the point that you're putting in conscious effort to something else. And then I'm going to wait a little bit and then I'm going to see if you can retrieve those five words, okay? So these are the words. Leaf, building, storm, ring, cushion. Now I want you to answer this question. Three times 36. I'll give you a few seconds to figure that out. Don't stress too much if you can't. Three times 36. 
Okay, now I want you to close your eyes and I want you to extend both your arms out in front of you and you want to get your left finger to touch your nose, the tip of your nose, and then extend it out again and get the right finger to touch the tip of your nose, extend it out again and do the same with your mouth, extend it out, left hand, and then right finger to your mouth and extend it out. Amazing. And then lastly, I want you to answer two times 78. Just give you a few seconds. Okay, cool. Now I'm just going to leave a little gap and then we'll go back to it. So as, you've no, as you're going to start to notice, working memory is a limited th- – it's a limited thing. You've got a capacity and it means that you can't truly multitask because you're pulling information and trying to process it with your conscious mind and you can't be really involved in two conscious processes at once, okay? So you'll find that for most people when they retrieve those words, the average of retrieval is about half. Okay, so the average being 2.5. So some people it's way less, some people it's more. Okay, so the goal is to make that piece of information as relevant to your life as possible. You want to add meaning to it. And the best way to do that is to visualize and to think of images that are going to help you consolidate that memory faster, okay? So visuals are a great way of consolidating memory. You're just using more of your brain. So if you can have like, and other things as well. So a song to it, some people, literally, if you look at those memory champions out there, some people actually mix movement with with a, a, a word or a number. So then it's much easier for them to then recall it. But most people, it's either, it's, it's visual. So there's a Netflix series on the mind by Vox. It's very good. And there's one that talks about memory champions and how they actually train their mind. We're talking people that are not, are not some, you know, like prodigy people or whatever. They're just trained their mind like a muscle or their memory like a muscle to retain these like, you know, seamless, seemingly useless pieces of information and then retrieve it straight away like memorizing an entire deck of cards in 30 seconds that kind of thing they are using imagery in their mind they are visualizing things that they link these cards to an image and they turn that image into a story and that is how they remember it you want to add meaning the more meaning you can add the easier it is to consolidate and the easier it is to retrieve okay so now i want you to go and retrieve those five words and see how many you can come up with and go i'll give you a few seconds Cool. So most of you, if you if you memorize five words, amazing. That's fantastic. But most of you don't feel like annoyed that you only remembered a handful, like maybe three or even four, and you just don't quite get the last one. That's just got to do with how much meaning you're putting into those words and how quickly you're able to consolidate them into your memory and 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 make it relevant to what you're doing and what you're working on. So if the words are irrelevant, your memory, your mind is quite, in, it's 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 savvy and intelligent. It's thinking that is pointless, get rid, okay? So if you're trying to then strengthen your memory, you want to learn to find how to find something that's seemingly irrelevant into something that's relevant and in, in meaningful to you. Now, let's quickly touch on that episodic memory that we were talking about. It's really interesting that your episodic memory can improve when you can link emotion to an event. For example, if you went away on a weekend with your partner and you just had a really nice weekend and you just chilled, right? You maybe had breakfast, you maybe went for a swim, but you know, nothing major is happening. If I was to ask you what you did exactly, unless you've got crazy episodic memory, 
If I was to ask you what you did, you know, as a timeline of events a year later, most people are not going to remember. They'll just remember the weekend as a concept, okay? And like little bits here and there. But if you spent the whole day together, it was all beautiful, and at the end of the day, your partner proposed to you, then all of a sudden, that one memory paints the whole day. So it paints the whole day with intense emotion. It was this beautiful thing that happened. You one of the, the best days of your life. You're really excited. You're so in love. If someone a year or two years later was to say, what happened that day? You'd be like, oh my God, okay. So we woke up and, I, and he was acting all weird. And um, I could tell that he was a bit nervous, but I didn't know what it was. And then we went to breakfast and, and detail, 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 detail. Even though this emotional thing happened later on in the day. So there's this really interesting concept that if you link heavy emotion to something, your likelihood of remembering everything that happened prior and post that day, you will also retain. Okay. Now there's a really interesting podcast called, it's called Serial. Um, and it is about this case. I think it was the first season of Serial, I believe. And it was about this case of this this teenager that basically got murdered and they pinned her ex-boyfriend for it, who was also a teenager that went to the same high school. And they found that it was really kind of difficult to get kids to remember as witnesses, to get witness accounts and storylines to place this guy, Adnan Sayed, the guy that was convicted for this murder. Um, they, were, they found it really difficult when they were interviewing because they were interviewing weeks and weeks later. So they were saying, where were you um, on Friday afternoon five weeks ago? And everyone's like, I don't, I don't fucking know. And if someone said, were you working? Oh, yeah, maybe I was working. Were you doing this? Mm, I don't know. So it was really difficult to, to, to get them to place themselves where they were. And this is before, this is in like 99 or 98. So it was before everyone had mobile phones and, and you know, and social media. You can't look back at a photo to trigger a memory. Then they realized that the day that that happened, there was like a blizzard. So then they're like, oh my God, perfect. Let's just talk to the students and say the day of the blizzard, what happened? And most people were able to pull way more information because a blizzard is quite a memorable event. So they were able to remember earlier that day what had occurred, even before the blizzard hit. So they were able to pull more meaningful information and place people in situations at the library, at the gym, at whatever, than had nothing gone down that day. So also on a side note, fucking amazing podcast. So go listen to it if you like true crime and investigation and stuff. Okay, so to wrap it up, I'm going to quickly go into a little bit more about false memories. Um, I may or may not have spoken about this in a previous podcast, but it is fucking interesting. So I'm going to hash over it again. And then I'm just going to, of course, go into ways of how you can improve your memory. Okay, now false memories are remembering something that didn't happen remembering a face to be the face that you know when it's not at all, not even remotely close to that face, okay? Now, your memory, like I said before, does not work like a recording device. It doesn't and it can't. That's just not how the brain operates. The brain operates in a very interesting, mysterious way where it's pulling in relevant pieces of information to save energy so it can be also using the brain to do other things as well. You can't record every fucking detail. It's just going to let you know what is relevant to you and then you're going to keep that, okay? It is very easy to contaminate somebody's memory based on how a question is asked or based on how you get that person to recall information. So here's the study that I'm going to say. I might have already said it before. But there was a study that was done, very, very interesting, and it was where they got participants to watch a video of a car crash, okay? They then asked these participants, they split them into two groups, and they said, how fast were the cars going 
when they collided. They asked the other group, how fast were the cars going when they smashed into each other? Obviously, the group that heard, well, maybe not obviously, the group that heard the words smashed into each other reported that the cars were going like at least 15 k's faster or, or 15 miles faster than the cars that collided with each other. Additionally, they asked, was there any glass, smashed glass on the floor? The ones that heard the word when the cars smashed into each other reported seeing glass even though there was no glass and the ones that heard collided, most of them reported not seeing any glass when there was no glass. So there's a way of contaminating someone's information, um, someone's memory by kind of using words that kind of um, elaborate on what it could have occurred or they exaggerate what has happened and and asking if something was seen by prompting them. So instead of saying, what did you see? They say, was there smashed glass on the floor? They're saying smashed glass, cars smashing into each other. So you're going to think, yeah, there must have been. And you're retrieving a memory of seeing smashed glass at a car crash somewhere in your life. And then you're placing it into this memory. Okay, And you are swearing that for sure that's what you saw. When you just saw it not that long ago. They did another study. There's this woman, she's got a fantastic TED Talk on false memories. Her name is Elizabeth Loftus, if you want to look it up. And she spoke about how they were manipulating memories of soldiers that they were training um, for if, if they ever became a prisoner of war. So how they train them up, where they put them under like really intense conditions, where they're torturing them and whatever. And when the conditions are so intense, they found that people's memory became quite warped and they were unable to retrieve information perfectly. There were certain things that, of course, they remembered as in what was done to them, this and that. But when it came to the eyewitness account of identifying who did the treatment on them, get, keep in mind this is an experiment. Um, they still, but with soldiers, they still put them under really awful conditions to prep them for these things, when they asked them to recall who was doing the torturing, they did like a lineup of people and in most of the cases they identified somebody that doesn't look remotely close to the guy that was actually doing the torturing or putting them under these crazy conditions. So it just shows you that a lot of the time an eyewitness account is not always accurate because there might be all these other factors that have come into play to contaminate that person's memory. It could be an intense emotional thing. It could be seeing another face. It could be someone talking about what the criminal could have looked like. There could be so many things that come into play. Or you might get a piece of information that might bias you to choose a certain person in a witness lineup that maybe you wouldn't have had that bias had you not had that piece of information. So if you've watched like Making a Murderer and things like that and you listen to the police interrogation, it is so inappropriate how they interrogate this teenage kid um, based like with how they implant information. They literally feed this guy a story. They keep him for hours in this interrogation room and then the dude starts recalling information that never actually happened and stuff that he'd never actually ever seen before. And then after having some moments to chill out, he's like, wait a minute, whoa, that never happened. I don't think I ever saw that. So it's really easy to manipulate someone's memory. It's quite terrifying. Okay, now let's talk about how to improve your memory, how to store memories better. So there's a few ways of doing it. One of them is, we all know it, it's acronyms, okay? Like CPR, Dr. ABC, doing all of that stuff. Uh, also BOMDAS, where you're doing a mathematical equation. Sometimes you might know words that you think are words, but are acronyms. Like, for example, 
Um, there's some like obvious ones like SIM card, but that means subscriber identification module or like scuba from scuba diving. I didn't know that it meant self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. The fuck? I had no idea. And there was another one that I found recently. Um, just trying to remember it. Oh, base jumping. I didn't know that base jumping base stood for building antenna span or earth. So there's a fucking fun fact for you if you didn't know that because I didn't know that and I thought that was really interesting. So obviously an acronym is a really good way of remembering like a bunch of words put together so you can remember concepts, themes, ideas. Then you've got repetition. It's very good but it's very time consuming. When you are repeating something, so this comes down to studying when you're trying to like rote learn something. When it comes down to repetition, ideally you want to you add as much meaning to it as possible or turn it into a story so if, for example, somebody was just talking to me about a neurotransmitter, I'm like, okay, I'm trying to remember what it does. But if you then say, when you take MDMA, this does this, this, if you turn it into a story, for me personally, I'm way more likely to retain that information because it's a very, not only a story that follows a curve, but it's a very interesting story as well. So I'm way more likely to be emotionally invested in it and then be able to recall it. When you're, however, back to repetition, when you're trying to repeat something and repeat, 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 so you learn it, you've got to leave gaps in between that repetition. If you're repeating it again and again and again and again, you're still working within that time frame of the working memory. You're not leaving a gap, a rest in between for you to then revisit it, okay? So you need to leave a gap in between, but you also can't make that gap too big. So when you look at these language apps, for example, not Spawn, but I use Duolingo and I fucking love it. You you leave a day in between. You're not leaving too long because then you forget a lot of things. But if you leave a day in between, you get better and better and better because a day is enough for you to kind of forget a few things. But when you return to it, it triggers that memory. And you're like, oh, yep, okay. And, you, and it starts getting locked into your memory the more you use it. Flashcards are also a really, really good way of retaining information. Ideally, Unless it's way too intricate or it's too time consuming or the information you're trying to put on the flashcard, whatever, ideally you want to make your own flashcards, okay? The reason for this is that you're going to write it in, a, in words that are more understandable to you. You're going to write it in a way that, that triggers your own memory much quicker. It's your words. And also by creating the flashcards, you're working on, you're, you're adding visual movement, your writing, that you're using a whole lot more different processes within your brain to create the flashcard and put the information down. So then when you go and retrieve it, it's a lot easier. You remember even making that flashcard. So there's a lot more involved in, in your memory when you do that. So if you're like a science or math kid or whatever, flashcards are very, 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 or a med student, flashcards are very useful for that. Then we've got something called chunking. Chunking is phenomenal for remembering things. You want to break information down into manageable pieces. So when I was in France, I noticed that they would break up your phone number into five two-digit numbers and they would say like 68, 42, 72, whatever, you know, so, and it would be like that instead of being like one digit at a time, one, five, three, five, one, you know, that kind of thing. So I found that it was a lot easier to remember my own phone number in France when I got a phone number than it was to remember my phone number when I first got my phone number in Australia. If I was to say to you, remember the number 1972, instead of saying 1972, 
you're going to remember the chunking a lot easier. Or even if I say, like, remember this, remember this, three, six, five, four, two, one. Instead of saying 365, 421, you're only remembering two numbers versus six numbers because you've chunked them together. Okay. So that you want to start using that as much as possible, especially when it comes for numbers. And even, even you can try and like chunk names together by turning it into a little bit of a song where you do three names in one and then another three names in one, things like that. You also, if you're trying to strengthen your memory, try to make it about recalling and not filling in the gaps, okay? Because that's where the, the, the real work is in recall, not multiple choice. So if you're making yourself flashcards, don't make them multiple choice. Make it recall. Like what is the blah? What is this? What is that? You know, that's the best way of doing it. Then, of course, it's super important to sleep. Never, never, never do an all-nighter before an exam. It is so futile and fruitless and pointless and ridiculous and it's just a waste of your time and you've done yourself no service at all. It's a disservice, okay? Reason being, you've crammed, like I said, you've, you've not left enough gaps between the pieces of information that you're trying to consolidate. So a lot of it will stay in your working memory but then not consolidate into long-term. Sleep is one of the best ways to consolidate memory as well. And... You're fatigued. So it's just a stupid idea. Don't do it to yourself. You're better off studying for half of it and sleeping for the other half. 100% hands down, okay? So sleep is one of the best ways to improve your memory. Then you also, they found that cardio aerobic exercise is one of the best ways to increasing in a, in a, for a long period of time, increasing blood flow to the hippocampus. The more oxygen and blood flow you get to the hippocampus, the more likely you are to increase the memory. Your hippocampus starts to shrink one to 2% once you reach kind of, I think it's in your thirties, it starts to shrink one to 2% a year if you're not doing certain things to keep it like to keep blood flow to it, to keep activating it, keep growing it, all of that stuff. So that's why you get a lot of um, memory decline in old age, except for the people that have a really good cognitive reserve, which I've spoken about before, I won't go into. But that's this idea of like you're working at working at, you're putting effort, conscious effort towards your memory, okay? Then, um, of course, saunas. Listen to my sauna episode. Huge. Then doing things to reduce your stress. Listen to my stress episode. Massive. Because cortisol has a really chronic levels of cortisol will affect your memory in a really bad way. Acute levels of cortisol, like acute stress, will actually help improve your memory in that moment. So if someone's like, fuck, you've got to quickly remember this number plate. You've got to, you're stressed, you're heightened. You're probably going to remember the number plate. You'll be like driving it into your memory, repeating it. Your heightened alertness, you're going to remember it, okay? Versus if you're really, really highly stressed and someone's like, hey, can you just remember this number for me? And then returns, can you, and you're like, I don't fucking remember it. I've got too much on my mind, okay? So there's the difference between acute stress where it's going to help you and then uh, chronic stress where it's absolutely not going to help you. But I've got a whole podcast on that. Go listen to my stress podcast. Then um, snacking on things that have high levels of flavonoids. So berries are a good example. Flavonoids are great for uh, neuroprotective purposes. There's a lot of nootropics out there that have flavonoids in them. Go drink them or eat them. Um, then conversations in person with people. Socializing is phenomenal for your memory where you're having deep conversations about where you're either debating things or where you're recalling information or telling stories. Telling stories is a great way to improve your memory. All of these things. Of course, those memory apps are great where you're using your working memory to work through a fucking maze and to pull information into here and 
in there where, you know, the ones where there's one that my sister uses. I really need to remember it. It's hectic. And there's, it lets off all these little trains and you've got to put the train into the right house. The brown train goes into the brown house, but they start in- intersecting and you've got to close off parts. Otherwise the train goes down. That's a great way to practice and use your working memory because you're literally trying to remember that brown train is still on its track while this white train's got to go here. The red train, phenomenal. Okay. Then you also want to, of course, train your memory with practice. This is going to increase your neural activity and that's going to be things like learning a language, learning an instrument, learning a motor skill. That kind of stuff is also great for your overall memory as well, okay? So, guys, I really hope that this um, episode was quite interesting. I find memory fascinating and I honestly love this topic so much. I could listen to documentaries about memory. So, I highly recommend you guys go listen, to, go watch that um, Netflix series about people that are memory athletes, the memory champions. It's so interesting because a lot of these people that do it are just your everyday person, just like me, probably you, unless you're a memory athlete yourself, that just had the normal capacity to remember a couple of numbers and that was it. And they then turn into these like crazy, like it's like a computer where they retain so many numbers in one go. It's incredible. Okay. So go check that out as well. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Hopefully you guys start making your own little flashcards. You start doing stuff for your, your, um, your own memory because guys, memory makes up a part of who you are. It is you. Without your memories, you are lost. This is why losing your memory can be one of the hardest things to go through because you have this detachment to who you are, your identity and your own history that makes you, you. Okay. So even suffering short-term memory loss from like a concussion or head trauma, whatever, that's quite stressful as it is. And then the more stress you have, the harder it is to retrieve your memories. I explain how that works in my stress episode. And then when you look at people who suffer from a neurodegenerative disease, where memory loss is one of the key symptoms, like Alzheimer's disease, you're going to see that these people also, that it's very comorbid with severe, severe depression because they have a loss of sense of self. They can't place themselves and understand who they are and how they can relate to other people and who that other person is and the memories that you share together, okay? So do everything you can to strengthen your memory. Memories and your ability to work on your working memory is going to increase your quality and enjoyment of life in the short term, but also in the long term. Guys, that is the wrap up for today's episode. I just want to say shout out to my listeners in South Africa. We've got people in Johannesburg, Cape Town, Pretoria, Durban, all these, so many cities. It's amazing, amazing. Bloemfontein. Can someone please teach me how to pronounce that? But love you so much. People from Bloemfontein. I feel awful because I'm probably butchering that beautiful name. Uh, But thank you guys so much for tuning in, listening today. Love you all around the world. My beans, my global beans. Guys, remember, as always, be kind to yourselves. Be kind to your brains. Keep practicing on your memory. Don't take shit from anyone and especially don't take shit from yourself. Danke.